All right, church family, let's uh, step into God's Word together as part of our worship today. And uh, if you'll take your Bibles and join me in the book of Isaiah this morning in the Old Testament, chapter 40 is where I'd invite you to go with me. So if you take your Bible and you open it almost up to the very middle, it's going to fall out maybe right in the book of Isaiah or very close. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and uh, Eric will be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. There's a note page in your bulletin. Retrieve that if you wouldn't mind as well. I'm looking forward to our time together in the Word today. As the story goes, while hunting, Larry and Elmer got lost in the woods. Trying to reassure his friend, Larry says to him, Don't worry, all we have to do is shoot into the air three times, stay with where we are, and someone will find us. And so they shot into the air three times, but nobody came. Well, after a while, they tried that again. Still, nobody came. When they decided to try once more, Elmer said, Man, I sure hope it works this time. We're down to our last three arrows. <laughs> down to our last three arrows. I, I like that little twist of a story because it, it humorously points out the danger of putting one's confidence in the wrong thing. You could fire a hundred arrows silently into the sky and you're not going to bring the help that you're hoping for by doing that. Larry and Elmer's mis- uh, confidence was misplaced. Church family, this morning we're going to think together about where we're placing our confidence and our trust as we stand on the front edge of a brand new year, 2019. Can you believe that? 2019. At one time that just sounded so far away, so far out there, and, and yet now here it is, 2019. Where are we? Where are you? Where am I placing our confidence and our trust as we step into this new year. Our country finds itself in an extraordinarily challenging place as we step into this new year. Incredibly complex issues internally, huge globally encompassing problems externally. Even a casual read of the daily news feeds informs us of a host of daunting realities that are facing our nation facing our national leaders, and ultimately then facing us. The government, as you know, is in shutdown mode as the various parties calculate their moves and they defend their positions. The economy nervously teeters on the edge of another recession. The war on terrorism just seems to have no end to it. Immigration and border control continues to divide us, an already divided nation, and there is an ever-widening gap, as you know, between God and government. And this, of course, has led to massive moral upheaval in our culture, where we have laws that legalize the murder of unborn children. We're redefining marriage, which is eroding traditional family structures within our, our nation. There's unbridled immorality, human trafficking, escalating crime, prisons that are so crowded that we let the guilty go free, 
The drug wars continue. Gangland violence, often drawn along racial lines, continues. Indiscriminate killing in the workplace or at concerts, on campuses, and even in churches. And of course, let's not forget catastrophic natural disasters that just seem to come one right after the other, ominous environmental concerns, diminishing natural resources, increasing demand for the resources that are left, rising prices for everything that further distance the haves from the have-nots. And church family, that's just page one of our news feeds. Just page one. Sociologists call this time that we are living in the age of anxiety. I wonder why they call it that. The age of anxiety. A revealing summary phrase for our times and made more so if you understand what the word anxiety means. Here's a a dictionary definition of anxiety. A state of apprehension, fear, distress about future uncertainties. Grave concern or worry about matters whose outcome is unknown. Anxiety. Apparently we live in the age of anxiety. Fellow Christian, is this how you feel as you stand on the front of a brand new year? Do you feel anxious? Does anxiety seem to kind of be where you are at in this moment? As I know you as a church family, I would certainly not think that to be the case. Now, certainly without a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, without a spiritual life that is rooted in the truth of who God is as he presents himself to us in his word, maybe anxiety is a reasonable response. If you don't have God who is outside of time and over all things and in control of all things, a God who is big enough for whatever the future might hold, well, then maybe anxiety is to be expected. But such is not the case for you. Such is not the case for me. Not for you, not for me. We may have to live in an age of anxiety, But church family, we do not have to be anxious, do we? Yeah, amen to that is right. Especially not when we we step into a place like Isaiah chapter 40 where your Bible lies open now and we get to hear afresh God as he talks about himself to us. Now, if Isaiah chapter 40 is not one of your favorite Old Testament chapters, I hope that after today it will certainly be that as God here in the 40th chapter is pleased to tell us just some some wonderful, timeless, comforting, confidence-building, anxiety-reducing truth about himself, things that we may not know about him or that we may already know and just need to be reminded of again, truths that he reveals himself. This is a a moment of powerful self-disclosure on the part of God. Written down, first spoken through the mouth of an Old Testament prophet by the name of Isaiah. And these words were originally intended for a people, for the Jewish people, the Israelites, who were destined to find themselves living in their own age of anxiety. 
The prophet Isaiah, he lived about 2,800 years ago during a stormy period of Jewish history when the nation itself was uh, in rapid spiritual decline. I would say that that time is very similar to our own time, for we in our nation are in rapid spiritual decline as a culture, as a people. And so a good deal of Isaiah's book foretells how God's hand of righteous discipline is going to come upon the nation of Israel for its continual rebellion, its continual disobedience, its, its defiant disregard of God and his word, its widespread preoccupation with earthly material wealth as opposed to spiritual wealth. And it's amazing, almost like a moth drawn to a flame, attraction to idol worship, replacing God with objects made out of wood and stone. This was the climate in the days of Isaiah as these words are first being written. God's discipline will come on Israel for their faithless rejection of him in the form of an outside foreign power. Two nations, actually, Assyria and the Babylonians, they will invade Israel and Judah, kind of like a swarm of locusts. They just descend on the nation. They burn Jerusalem to the ground. They devour the land and its people, and they carry the Israelites off. If you know the story biblically, they carry Israel off into a foreign land, to, into a period of time known as the exile. The nation will be exiled to Babylon. They will be forced to, to be slaves in that, in that nation for 70 years. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book give sobering details about this terrible time that is going to come upon the nation. God says, oh, Israel, this is what is coming. When it comes, don't say that I did not tell you. I'm letting you know 175 years in advance through my prophet Isaiah that this is what is going to happen. I'm giving you plenty of time to turn your hearts and your children's hearts back to me. That's chapters 1 through 39. Well, the nation refuses to listen, refuses to humble itself, refuses to change course, and so divine discipline does come. And that we know because we have the biblical record. But we also know that eventually, while in exile, Israel's proud heart will soften, the heart of the nation will break, and because God cannot forsake his people, he will in time, after his discipline has done its good work, he will restore Israel and Judah back to their own land, back to their own country. And that's what chapters 41 through 66 of this book of Isaiah are all about. And so the first half of the book is warning, and the second half of the book is restoration. And chapter 40 sits right in the middle between these two great movements of the book. Chapter 40, in, in, in many ways, is kind of like the fulcrum of the book of Isaiah, kind of like a teeter-totter. You know where you got the teeter-totter going back on and forth on the fulcrum. And so you've got, you've got warning on one side, and then you've got the restoration on the other side, and Isaiah 40 sits right there in the middle. And so this 40th chapter is all about God taking kind of a pause between these two great movements, and he just wants to remind his people of who he is, who he is and what he is, is like. 
And so he begins with a, a tender expression after the brutal forecast of the first 39 chapters. Notice how the tone changes with verse 1 of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. In other words, peace is coming again. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And we say, Amen and Amen. Verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God! Exclamation point. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. We'll stop right there for a moment. What a gracious, tender expression from God, accompanied by numerous images, including that of God casting himself in the role of a shepherd, gathering the wayward lamb Israel into his arms, holding it close to his heart. It's a beautiful picture after 39 chapters of, of warning and impending judgment. But at the heart of these first 11 verses, church family, is this declaration, which is in red there on the screen. Behold your God. See your God. Look at him. See him for who he is and what he is really like. Behold him. And it is with that, behold your God, that beginning in verse 12, God pulls back the veil on himself, so to speak. And for the rest of this chapter, he's just going to reveal to Israel and by extension to us some truths about himself, about his nature, about his character, about his, his person, his power as our God. And his intent in doing this is to bring confidence to a people living in a chaotic time to bring courage to people who are living in a fearful time, to bring comfort to people living in an anxious, uncertain age, to bring challenge to his people living in a spiritually declining environment. And so this chapter and God's self-disclosure is perfectly timed for us on the front end of a brand new year. So with the help of your note page, let's hear God remind us of who he is. At least five truths about himself 
that he would have us to know, beginning with that first one there, our God is the power over all power. Amen and amen. Standing on the steps of a brand new year filled with uncertainties and all kinds of unknowns, we must not fail to remember this, church. Our God is the power over all power. Verse 12, God begins by asking some rhetorical questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has done that? Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out the starry host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of those stars is missing. Our God is the power over all power. When you get home today, just as a kind of a practical expression of, of things we're going to be we're talking about here today, I would encourage you to go to your kitchen sink and and turn on the faucet and then just cup your hands and and, and cup and, and get a, a handful cup of water from the faucet there and just take a look at it for a moment. What a puny, tiny, infinitesimally small amount of water you can hold in your hands as you cup them. And yet, what does God say in verse 12? I can hold the waters of all of the oceans, the seas, the rivers, the lakes, the streams, the ponds, and even the clouds in the hollow of my hand, singular. I can hold it all in the palm of my hand with less effort than it will take you to walk to the sink. That's who I am. And then he asks us to look at our hand, a span of not more than nine inches. If you have a big hand, it's about a nine-inch span. And God says, with my hand, I span an infinite universe. Within the span of my hand, I've placed every, every heavenly body made it the right size, located that, that, that body in the right place, caused it to move in the right direction, at the right speed, in harmony with every other star and planet, all the while endowing those stars and planets with the precise properties that will perfectly control light and heat and gravity and tides and time on the earth. And I do it all within the span of my hand, God says. God invites us to look up into the sky tonight and consider the stars. Who made all of those, he asks, verse 26. You know, we can only see about 4,000 stars with our naked eye on a dark, clear night. Do you know how many stars there are? Any idea? I don't know where the astronomers get this number, but astronomers tell us that there are 10 to the 21st power stars that's 10 with 21 zeros after it that's how many stars there are now astronomers have named about 250,000 stars 
out of this vast number, 250,000. God has named every single star. Not one is missing. He can put the whole earth in a basket, says verse 12. All six sextillion tons of earth. That's six with 18 zeros, by the way. And he can do that, church family, with less effort than, than you are using to hold your Bible in your lap. He can do that. He can scoop up the Himalayas and, and measure them with less effort than you would pick up a pebble and hold it in your hand. Listen, my people, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Do not fret. I am the power over all power. There's nothing that I cannot do. It's my world. It's my creation. I have everything well in hand, literally, in my hand. God, you are the power over all power. You're omnipotent. Second, there on your note page, our God is the knower of all that can be known. Do you believe that? Yeah. It's bad grammar. I'll confess that. It's bad grammar, but it declares a great truth does it not our God is the knower of all that can be known that's an omniscient God again God asks some rhetorical questions beginning in verse 13 who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel whom did he consult and who made him understand who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding Who taught God? God's questions have but a single three-word response. No one, Lord. No one taught you. No one. Who can possibly measure God's mind? Search out his thoughts. Teach him, counsel him, instruct him. Show him the right way to do something. Verse 28 says, His understanding is unsearchable, unsearchable fathomable he understands everything a few chapters beyond this chapter 40 if you were to go to chapter 55 which we will do and you check out verses 8 and 9 here's what we read together these are words that that many of you know and some of you have memorized for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's God saying? I do. (laughs) I'm the knower of all that can be known, is what he is saying. Now, if we just linger on this truth, that this is who God is, how can we ever be tempted to think that, that God might not have chosen the best way or done that a certain thing in the best time? whether we're talking about global issues or or national affairs or, or personal matters within our own individual lives, God omniscient has never, ever wondered what the right thing is to do. He just knows it. He's never once wondered, did I do the right thing? And God omnipotent, the power over all power, has never been unable to do the right thing that God's mind has thought to do. Ever. If God conceives a thing, 
He can do it. And it will be the right thing no matter how we might see it in the moment. He's the knower of all that can be known. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul echoes this this truth of Isaiah when he writes these words in 11, the 11th chapter of Romans, verses 33 to 36. In fact, church family, can we just read these together? They're so powerful and so clear. Let's read them together. Uh, Back to the Lord, right off the screen. You ready to do that with me? Let's do it. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Yeah. May that be our conviction, brothers and sisters, on the front end of 2019 and all the way through this year. But God doesn't stop here with his self-disclosure. If you flip your note page over, he next wants to remind us that he is the ruler over all who reign. He's the ruler over all who reign. Now, this is a particularly timely reminder given the depth of frustration and the amount of distrust that so many have today towards our elected officials. To people living in an anxious age, God says, I am the sovereign ruler over all who rule on the earth. That's a good thing to know going into a brand new year. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Verse 23, Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he, that is God, blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Earlier in verse 10, God said, behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. These verses we just read simply enlarge upon that truth. Ultimately, the Lord rules over all the kingdoms of the earth, the nations of the world, which at the present number 195 different nations or countries in our world. And every single person sitting in a seat of power in any one of those 195 nations right now, does so ultimately because God cast the final vote in their favor. That's the truth. Whether history judges them to be good rulers or diabolical rulers, they rule to accomplish God's ultimate purpose because he puts them in place to accomplish his purposes. Do we believe that, church? I mean, do we really, really believe that? 
On the world stage, we hear of nations overrunning other nations and, and borders collapsing and new ones being drawn. And, and we hear of kings and dictators and prime ministers and presidents stepping in and stepping out of office and seizing power and relinquishing control. We're going to hear and read about that a number of times in 2019. We're going to hear that kind of news. Let's remember verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket to God. The actual Hebrew expression here pictures a a drop of water that falls off the side of a bucket as it's being pulled up out of a well. The nations of the world, the rulers of those nations, God says, they are to my plans and my purposes no more significant than a single drop of water running down the side of a bucket. Now that's not to say that God does not take interest in the affairs of mankind because he most certainly does. But these nations that, that bear names like like Great Britain or Russia or the United States or Iran or North Korea or India or China, they are to him, he says, like a speck of dust on a scale. They don't even register. Having no influence whatsoever in terms of altering the plans that he has for his world. Think how many rulers God has has seen come and go countless pharaohs, Nebuchadnezzars, Caesars, Genghis Khans, Napoleons, Hitlers, Husseins. I plant them, he says. They sprout. And then in their pride, I merely blow on them. And they shrivel up. And they are no more. Our God, is the ruler over all who rule. Now that's good to know on the front end of a brand new year. Our God is omnipotent, he is omniscient, and he rules it all. Fourth, our God is perfect. Or as we say it there on your page, our God is the perfection that alone is to be worshipped. Look in your Bible at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare him to? An idol? It's a question mark with an an exclamation. An idol? You're going to liken God to an idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. The word is totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? What Has it not been told you from the very beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? God is saying, get it together, man. Understand who I am. And so God once more asks the rhetorical question, who can, you, can you, who can you possibly compare me with? What can you com- possibly compare me to? To do so, to compare me to anything that exists is to deny my infinite perfection. To liken me to that which is created when I am the creator is to make me less than I am. 
That's what he's saying. It's like comparing the potter to his pot. The pot reflects the fingerprints of the potter, doesn't it? But, but to bring the potter down to the level of his pot, man, that is a gross mistake and a great dishonor. The potter is way more than the pot, right? How much more is that true of our God? God says it's an insult and it's folly for a person to create an object that could represent him and then worship that object as though it were God. In fact, that's more offensive to him than likening him, him to some object that he has created. For a person to, let's say, worship a mountain instead of the God who made the mountain, that's offensive to God. And in our day, creation worship is probably the fastest growing religion in the world. We're all about worshiping the creation. That's very offensive to our God. But for a person or for a whole people to make something with their own hands and then call that their God and bow down to that is much, much more offensive to God. Because in that case, puny little man borrows God's materials to make his idol with and then he comes up with a puny design for this God from his puny little mind, his finite mind, and then with puny little hands he crafts his God. And, and, and then he worships this God that he has made with his hands, which in the end means he worships himself, the maker, in a twisted sort of way. How offensive this is. To our God. No wonder such gods with a small g bring no confidence or comfort or security or peace. God says, You cannot contain me, infinite perfection in any object, so do not try. Don't even try. Which is why the first of the, the first and second commandments of God's Ten Commandments say these words. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Why? Because it will be less than me. It will be a poor reflection of me. Jesus says, worship God in spirit and in truth and leave it at that. That's enough. God's happy with Our God is infinitely powerful, infinite in his knowing. He rules with sovereign right over all of the earth, and he's infinitely perfect, which rightly calls forth worship from what has been made by him. And yet, yet, church family, though there is this unfathomable chasm of infiniteness between God and you and me as the created, God says... Though there is this great chasm between us, I am right here with you. I am so near. God is infinite, but he is so near, close, accessible, touchable, involved. Look at verse 27 and following. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by by my God. In other words, God, why have you forgotten about me? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Up to this point, in an effort to encourage and invigorate a weary and anxiety-ridden people, God has largely emphasized his transcendence. That is, those aspects of his person that communicate and, and show us how far above and beyond us he really is. He transcends. He goes beyond, 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 infinitely beyond our most earnest efforts to comprehend him. That's as it should be. He's God. We should be very small. And he should be very great. Infinitely great. But God does not want to leave us with the impression that just because he's far above us, he must also be far away from us. That would be wrong. He is anything but far away. In verse 28, God says that he never gets tired and he never falls asleep. So his eye is never for a single nanosecond not on you. He's looking at you right now. He sees you. He knows the number of hairs on your head right this moment. Verse 29, he is ever there to share his strength and his power and his protection to anyone who, as verse 31 says, waits expectantly for him. In other words, trusts him. Their hope is in him alone. That word wait in verse 31, it's a neat little Hebrew word that literally means to wrap or entwine around. That's the word wait. And it literally pictures the way that a vine might entwine itself around another object and, and, and hold on to it with, with great strength. God says we can do that with him. We can wait on him. We can entwine ourselves around him. That's how close he is. I'm far above you, but I am not far away from you. That's good to know as 2019 unfolds. God says, I am all power, all knowing, all control, all perfection, but I'm also right here. I'm all you need. In 2019. My question is, do we believe it, church? Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? No more plainly or powerfully could God make these truths real to us, especially the last truth that he's near, than he does in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our, 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 our Savior. Now, we just celebrated Christmas. Church family, what is Christmas all about? If you boil it down, what is it all about? It's about Jesus, but it's really about God entering our world, right? It's about God putting on our humanity without relinquishing his deity and coming to us, coming near to us. In fact, one of Jesus' names, as you well know, and you sung it over the holidays, 
was Emmanuel. That's one of Jesus' names. What does that name mean? God with us. The God who has come near. And how beautifully God seeks to convey this to us if we go back to verse 11 of chapter 40 where he casts himself in the role of a shepherd and he says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Such rich imagery of intimacy and closeness as God first holds Israel but then he holds us close to his heart as a shepherd. And Jesus has every right, because he is God himself, to take up this image and apply it to himself as he does in John chapter 10. You know these words. Hear them again. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundant. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God has come near. What Jesus is saying here is that God put on flesh so that he could die a sinner's death, though he is sinless, and in the course of doing that, grant forgiveness and eternal life to any who believe in him. Could there be a more appropriate way, church family, or a more fitting way for us to to step into this new year than to remember that moment when the good shepherd left heaven and came near, so near that he could die for us and give us his life. And, and, and what better way to do that than to come to the table this morning? We call it the communion table, the table of remembrance, and just remember what Jesus has done for us. His body hanging on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, becoming sin for us, his blood poured out, the, the, the necessary requirement for our sin to be forgiven, covered by the blood of the Lamb so that we are guiltless before a holy God. What better way to bring in a new year than to come to this table? Agreed? Shall we do that together? Let's pray.